بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد أذن أمسالي and we're very happy to have our dear brother and teacher Sheikh Ali Tamimi with us tonight to share some of his insights into how we can benefit as much as possible from the blessed month of Ramadan which is of course will be with us in a few days time so I'll hand you over to our Sheikh Ali Alhamdulillah نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونتوب إليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم وبعد brings me great pleasure to be amongst my brothers here in a house among the houses of Allah, a house which has also a name of one of the important names in our religion, and that is of the Tawheed. As we are all aware, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us that we are now at the doorsteps of another season of Ramadan. And we should have great gratitude unto Allah Azza wa Jal that we were able to reach this far in the year. For how many of our brothers and sisters in the Ummah have passed away since last Ramadan and hence are unable to take the benefit of this month at which we are at its doorstep. Indeed, it is a great blessing from Allah to which we can never show Him true gratitude that Allah has given us life for another year that we may come across this month, that perhaps our worship during this month will be a cause for us to enter into paradise and to set free our necks from the hellfire. And the month of Ramadan is, my brothers, in reality, a type of spiritual school to which we enter every year, but yet, unfortunately, few of us graduate. But Allah in His mercy has allowed us to come back year after year to this school that perhaps we at the end may eventually graduate from the lessons we will draw from this month. Of course, the main reason, the main objective, the purpose behind this month is to achieve taqwa. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has informed us of that. For Allah has linked the two in His glorious book, wherein which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu, O you who believe, O believers, كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمُ الصِّيَامُ كَمَا كُتِبَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ O believers, fasting has been prescribed upon you as it was prescribed upon the previous peoples. Why? لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ That perhaps you may achieve taqwa. And taqwa is the aim of our existence. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has reminded us 
of this over and over in his book. Do we not see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses us and says, Ya ayuhalladhina amanu, ittaqu allaha haqqa tuqatihi, wa la tumutunna illa wa antum muslimun. Does not Allah say, O believers, show taqwa unto Allah as He deserves, and make sure you do not die except as Muslims. In this ayah there is a command and there is also a warning. The command to show taqwa unto Allah as He deserves, and a warning to make sure we do not die but as Muslims. The implication is that some of us might start off as believers, yet die as unbelievers. May Allah preserve us from that. And to show unto Allah taqwa as He deserves is something we can never do. For to show taqwa unto Allah as He deserves, it means, as some of the earliest Muslims have said, to obey Allah and never disobey Him. To remember Allah and never be forgetful of Him. And to thank Allah and never to be ungrateful unto Him. And who can say that they achieve that? Indeed, if we look at all the acts of worship, we can never achieve the act of worship as it has been required of us or as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deserves. We are all perhaps familiar of that hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ was one time walking with his companions and they heard a creaking sound. You know, the creaking sound is, for instance, if you're in an old home made of wood and you walk sometimes, it gives that sound. So they heard this type of sound above. And the Prophet ﷺ asked his companions, do you know what this sound is? And his companions replied, no. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Verily, it is the heavens above that are creaking. And they deserve to do so. For there is not a single space of a handspan, except that there is an angel either standing or bowing or prostrating. They have been that way since Allah has created them. And they will remain that way until the trumpet is blown. And when the trumpet is blown, they will say, Oh Allah, we have not worshipped you as you deserve. So think of that, O son of Adam. If the angels who do not disobey Allah, but yet only fulfill His commandments, are in a state of prayer, whether standing or bowing in prostration, from the time they were created until the day of judgment, and the angels are not like us where they die, they live 50 or 60 or 70 years, but rather they, their life is perpetual, we may say, for the lack of a better word. And yet when the trumpet is blown, what will they say? Oh Allah, we have not worshipped you as you deserve. So how can we imagine that we are discharging any act of worship as Allah deserves? Do you not see that the Prophet ﷺ has taught us that upon the completion of our prayer, that the first thing he would say is what? Astaghfirullah. I seek Allah's forgiveness. Why? Was that a sin that we committed? No. 
but the prayer is not as the prayer deserving unto Allah. And so one therefore seeks forgiveness for the shortcoming that is inherent in his prayer. And in the narrations reported upon the previous prophets, it is said that the Prophet Dawood alayhi salam, whom Allah refers to in the Quran as one of his grateful servants, that the Prophet Dawood said, Oh Allah, how can I thank you when the mere act of me thanking you is a blessing upon me which deserves another act of thanking, thankfulness. So one can never thank Allah Azza wa Jalla as he deserves. So we can either show taqwa to Allah as he deserves, we can either pray to Allah as he deserves, we can either thank Allah as he deserves, we can either love Allah as he deserves, we do not fear Allah as he deserves, we do not hope for him as he deserves. So in all of our deeds we are fallen short. But yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a merciful Lord. And he accepts from us those acts of worship that we do purely unto him. And in accordance to the teachings of his Prophet. So the first lesson we must take out of this school that we will enter in a few days is that we must learn to gain taqwa unto Allah. And a lot of Muslims wish to have taqwa, but they do not know the path to achieve taqwa. A lot of Muslims, especially during times when there is, they feel close unto Allah, like Ramadan, like Hajj, and so forth. They seek to have taqwa unto Allah, but yet they do not know the path on how to seek taqwa. And seeking taqwa and achieving taqwa is a discussion which deserves a talk on itself. But perhaps we can now mention one means that if we learn to apply it in our lives and if we learn to be constant in doing it, we will start to have taqwa. And this is a means which the earliest Muslims used to practice. And it is a means which they used to, the scholars would encourage one another to adopt. And it is a means which is rooted in the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ upon contemplation. And that is that a person takes from every day a portion of the day where he has private devotions with his Lord. What does that mean, private devotions? That every day you choose a part of that day. It could be in the morning, it could be in the evening. It could be during midday, it could be in the middle of the night. As to what your circumstances permit you. It could be for five minutes, it could be for an hour. As your time permits you. And in this period of time, you address your Lord and cast yourself in front of your Lord with humbleness and remorse. You might use this time to read some of Allah's scripture. You might use this time to pray some extra prayers. You might use this time to engage in some dhikr or some dua or invoking the salah upon the Prophet or reflecting upon your sins and how your life is passing by you 
and how you haven't utilized it and crying and repenting unto Allah. Any of these acts or similar deeds you might do during this time. But the point is, is you're consistent in that. Making sure that every day you have a special place in your home perhaps, which is a quiet place where you sit for five minutes, for ten minutes, for fifteen minutes, for an hour, and you engage in this. This is one of the sure ways to achieve taqwa. Because it is a way which really cleanses the soul. And it is a way which brings a person in front of his reality. So that he or she might not be deluded to think that they are upon righteousness when they are not. So the point is, is that the first lesson we must achieve from this month is taqwa. And the month of Ramadan is a month which greatly assists us in achieving taqwa. Because of all the acts of worship which are connected with this month. And that is why the earliest Muslims, the Salaf, would take much advantage of this month. For instance, the first thing they would do is they, they would have a realization that their attitude and their personality and their outlook needs to be different in this month as opposed to the rest of the year. The Prophet's companion, Jabir bin Abdullah, says, when you fast, also make sure that your hearing, your speech, your eyes fast with you. So you will not lie, you will not do sinfulness, you won't cause any harm to your neighbor. And he says, you should have upon you a dignified bearing. You should have upon you a type of tranquility of the day of your fast. And do not make the day of your fast like the day when you do not fast equal. This is a mental state that a person has. I'm now on a day of fast. And I'm not just, as they used to say, the earliest Muslims, that the least of fasting is just to give up drinking and eating. That's the least of fasting. But as Jabir says, also your ears need to fast with you. Your sight needs to fast with you. Your tongue needs to fast with you. Your limbs need to fast with you. You should have a dignity about you. You should have a tranquility and peacefulness about you. And your day of fasting should not be like the day in which you break fast. They also would gain taqwa because besides the obligatory fast, they would make use of this great act of worship. The prayer, night prayer, the taraweeh, the qiyam, which the Prophet ﷺ has said, he who stands in Ramadan in prayer, iman and wihtisaban, out of faith and out of seeking the reward from Allah, his sins will be forgiven. And they used to pay much attention to this. Imagine that the earliest Muslims, as Sa'ib bin Yazid says, they used to, the reciter who would lead them in prayer, would read hundreds of ayat. So that they would be compelled to hold on to staffs because of the length of the standing. Imagine that. That because they were standing so long in prayer, they would tire, they would actually bring staffs with them to hold on to while they're praying. And indeed, it is said that the earliest Muslims would typically 
leave the prayer of the night prayer just before Fajr. So they could go home and have a quick meal, quick suhoor, and then return for Salat al-Fajr. In other words, the night would be used for prayer. Also, they would take advantage of this month in order to gain taqwa through charity. Uh, Imam al-Shafi'i says that I love to see an individual be more generous during the month of Ramadan, following the practice of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, during that, and also due to the people's need for charity, because most many people will give up working long hours during the month of Ramadan because they're spending their time in worship. See how the understanding of the Salaf were? They looked at the religion as a whole. They said, well, people are going to be not working long hours, especially for those people who gain their living by their own hands. A shopkeeper might cut the amount of hours he's going to be in his shop. Uh, in, in, in contemporary terms, we might imagine a taxi driver might not drive those many hours because he wants to pray. And so hence, this person might have a shortage. And so therefore, he would need charity. Because maybe now he's gone below the poverty line. And so, they used to understand that, the, as, as Ibn Abbas said, the Prophet ﷺ was the most generous of people. And he was most generous during the month of Ramadan. And so Imam Shafi says, I, want, I would like to see people being generous in the month of Ramadan. Because the Prophet was like such, and also because the people are perhaps in need of more charity, because many people, poor people, are engaging in acts of worship, so now they're even being a little bit poorer. Likewise, one way to gain taqwa is to feed a person upon breaking their fast. Ibn Umar would never break his fast unless it was among orphans and poor people. And this is something which we really need to do in order to become humble, to sit with the poor people. Many of us, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed in the sense that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them good sustenance in this world. And so therefore they have maybe not material wants. But with this comes a price, with this blessing. To be charitable and also to be humble and not forget that you could be in a worse condition if Allah decrees and restricts your sustenance. And one way to get this type of humbleness, this type of Humility is to be with the poor. And Ibn Umar would never break his fast unless he was breaking fast among orphans and among poor people. Sometimes people, if you're going to invite them to your home, you only want a certain type of people to come into your house. But this is not the way of the earliest Muslims. And this is actually an impediment to gaining taqwa. But seek those lower than you. And no matter how poor you are, there should be somebody who is worse off. And break fast with them, at least for one day during the month of Ramadan. So you can sense the blessings that Allah has given you. Likewise, one of the ways that they used to do in order to benefit from this month, because as we know, Ramadan is the month of the Qur'an, is that they used to read the Qur'an frequently during this month. Uthman ibn Affan, it is said, radiallahu anhu, would complete the recitation of the Qur'an every day in the month of Ramadan. And some of the Salaf would, earliest Muslims would complete the recitation of the Qur'an 
every three nights, some every seven nights, some every ten nights. So they would do that to, in order to refresh their connection with Allah's book, which was, as we know, revealed during this month. And among the ways in which they used to gain taqwa is that they used to seek the night Laylatul Qadr, which as we all know, Allah has said, it is more worthy than a worship of a thousand months. Um, in fact, the Salaf, when they used to come to one of these odd nights, which could be the nights of Qadr, they would do things like make ghusl before they would come to worship, put on their best perfume, uh, put on their best clothes, because this is a night which Allah has made a noble night. And so therefore, a noble night requires noble behavior. I mean, now if you were going to meet somebody important, you would put your fine, take a shower, put your finest clothes on, and go early to meet that person. If it was, let's say, a job you wanted to get, or a sister you wanted to marry, and you were going to meet their family, or something of a, of a worldly need. So how much more so now we're going to meet this lovely night, which is better than the worship of a thousand months? Should we not at least give it the respect and the accord that we would do if we were seeking one of our worldly desires? That's the least we should do. And hence the setup would wash, wear perfume, wear their best clothes, go early, and wait for, to worship for that night. So the first lesson, of course, is getting taqwa. Now the second lesson is that taqwa, as we mentioned, um, has the, the value of making us closer to Allah. So when we come to the month of Ramadan, we should feel that we are now closer to Allah. Every day we pass the month of Ramadan, we should feel in our hearts that we have drawn closer to Allah. And a person feels, when a person is sinful, you feel what that type of distance from your Lord. And when you do acts of piety, you feel a closeness to Allah. When you do acts of piety, you feel a closeness to the other believers. When you do acts of sinfulness, you feel a distance from the other believers. And so therefore, in the month of Ramadan, from the first day to the second day, we should feel that we have increased in being closer to Allah. And the third day, we should feel even closer. The fourth day, until we come to the end of the month, we should feel that we have really journeyed a great distance and drawn closer to our Lord. For as we know, every step we take to Allah, Allah comes even closer to us as mentioned in the Qudsi Hadith. Now, the third lesson we need to draw from this month is that of being steadfast, is that of patience, strength of willpower, manliness in the Islamic context of what it means to be manly. You know, the Salaf used to say, like Ibn Mas'ud, that fasting is half of patience. And indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned this word, as-sabr, in the Qur'an over 90 times, and has mentioned it in 16 different contexts. And he has connected it, one of the contexts is that he has connected it with taqwa. 
And we are so much in need of to being steadfast in this time. One of the problems that Muslims face in this time is that we are a hasteful people. And our hastefulness is unfortunately not a hastefulness to good. It is typically a hastefulness towards our desires. Very quick we can be moved. And this is part of the nature of the modern world. I mean, the nature of the modern world is that we're programmed to respond quickly without thinking sometimes to different inputs. You see a commercial, all of a sudden you have a desire to buy that product, even though you might have never thought in your life to buy that product. Um, uh, you, you hear something and all of a sudden you want to follow it. So people have this quality during our time. And this is very detrimental to an Islamic personality. The Islamic personality needs to be a personality that reflects and thinks before it does anything, whether before it says something, whether before it hears something, whether before it touches something or does any activity. Do we not see Al-Hassan al-Basri saying that by Allah for the last 40 years I have never spoken or refrained from speaking. I have never extended my hand or refrained held back and restrained my hand. I have never taken a step forward or stayed in my place without first thinking, is this in the pleasure of Allah or not? And is this not ihsan to which the Prophet ﷺ has said that it means to worship Allah as if you see him? For even though you do not see him, he looks at you. So this type of steadfastness is required. Not only in our personal lives, but also in our da'wah. Also in dealing with the unbelievers and their assaults upon Islam. We need a strength and a willpower and a moral fortitude and a manliness that will allow us to traverse these fitin or these trials and tribulations that we face on a personal level, on a societal level, and upon the ummah scale. And fasting teaches us that. Because it teaches us to restrain ourselves. And by restraining ourselves, we learn that we do not act out of impulse. And we can reflect as to the best course of action and the most immediate course of action which will bring benefit to us, whether on the individual level or upon the societal or ummah level. Now, another lesson which we must draw from the month of Ramadan is that and this is one of the beauties of the act of fasting, is that by its nature, fasting precludes usually a riya, or showing off of one deeds. And that's why in the Qudsi hadith, it is said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, As-sawmu li, fasting is mine, and I will reward it. Why did the, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say, fasting is mine, and not say prayer is mine, hajj is mine, charity is mine, even though these are acts of worship which are only directed to him. Why did he choose fasting alone? The scholars of Islam, upon contemplating this hadith, Qudsi hadith, have said because fasting has a unique characteristic which is not shared by other acts of worship, in that it does not permit showing off. How does it not permit showing off? In the sense that... No one really knows if you're fasting or not. 
And if it's a voluntary fast, no one would know if you're fasting on that voluntary day. On normal one, we might make the assumption as, as a Muslim that you should be fasting. But in reality, nobody knows because it is not an act which is done in public. It is something between you and your Lord. So who knows if, you're, if you've eaten in secret or drunk in secret or what? Who knows that? No one. And so therefore, it lends to ikhlas. And it assists in ikhlas. And this is something which we need. Most of our problems in the ummah, especially for those engaged in da'wah, is due to lack of ikhlas. Had there been ikhlas, these divisions and arguments and so forth would melt away. Because there would be really nothing to argue about. But when ikhlas is lacking, then division creeps and appears. And so therefore, the sense that Allah is watching you, the sense that one must guard his or her deeds, his or her glances, his or her words, his or her actions, is something we can gain out of Ramadan. And riyah, showing off, is a very dangerous and subtle disease. Do you not see how the Prophet ﷺ described it? That it is more inconspicuous than a black ant crawling upon a black mountain in the middle of the night? Who can see that black ant crawling on the mountain, black mountain in the middle of the night? Only its creator, because it's something inconspicuous. And the earlier, earliest Muslims used to be very cautious about riyah. Sufyan al-Thawri used to spend his nights crying. When inquired, when his companions, his students inquired of him, what keeps you up during the night crying? Is it fear of the hellfire? He said, no, it is not that. But I have no idea whether my deeds are pure to Allah or not. So this whole idea of ikhlas is something which fasting uh, teaches us. Now, the other matter uh, which we should gain from fasting, benefits, is that we purify our character. And we learn to train ourselves to be truthful and to be trustworthy. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ said, As-Sawmu, fasting is a shield. So if any of you are fasting, he should not do any act of sinfulness or any act of ignorance. And if somebody insults you or tries to fight with you, don't respond by cursing that person back or fighting with that person back, but rather, فَلْيَقُلْ He should say, Inni sa'im, I am fasting. Inni sa'im, I am fasting. And indeed, the Prophet ﷺ said that he who does not give up falsehood or acting in a false manner, meaning acting sinfully, then Allah has no need for him to give up his food and drink. A lot of people think that fasting is just, okay, I don't eat and don't drink from dawn to sunset. And that's, no, that's not the aim of fasting. Also, it is to give up sinfulness. And indeed, the Prophet ﷺ has said that perhaps a person will only get of the fast just hunger and thirst. Because he, his body didn't fast with him. He will get no reward for the law. He is still engaging in sinfulness. So, this month, we should also use it. Remember, we're not just holding back, restraining from food and drink and sexual relations with our wives. But also, we are restraining from our bad character. And here, every one of us should contemplate and think. 
what behavior I have which is incorrect that I need to give up. I mean, we need to be practical when we want to change to better behavior. You can't just imagine that, okay, I start the fast and then at the end of the month I have perfect character. It doesn't work that way. It needs action. Everything in Islam needs for you to plant the seeds and then raise the crop and then gain the fruit of it. That's how it is. The Prophet ﷺ said, If you want to have knowledge, you need to learn. I mean, it's a simple equation. Knowledge through learning. Patience through learning patience. And so forth and so forth. And likewise, good character by practicing good character. And leaving bad character. So one has to think, what are the, my good qualities that I do them more often? What are my weak qualities that I need to give up on them? And my weak quality is not going to be like the brother's weak quality. And his good quality is not necessarily going to be like my good quality. Each of us is different. Each of us has their strengths. Each of us have their weaknesses. And each of us should focus upon his or herself and try to be introspective and try to see where is it that I fall short. Is it that I lie? Then I need to give up lying. Is it that I am a person who involves in that which does not... Uh, concern me, then I need to leave that. The Prophet ﷺ said, it is from the beauty of a, of a person's Islam that he leaves that which doesn't uh, concern him. Is it that I engage in backbiting and storytelling and gossiping? Is this what it is? Is it that I am overzealous for money? Is it that I want a following? I mean, whatever the disease of the heart is, one should find that disease and then use this month of Ramadan to push it out until a person then has gained the good character and left that evil character. Now, another benefit of the month of Ramadan is that it allows the Muslims to feel collectively and individually that we can move from a bad state to a good state. People uh, in, in life uh, sometimes get the notion which is, I mean, absolutely wrong that they can't change for the better and things will always remain bad. And this is from Shaytan. The month of Ramadan is a practical example that shows us we can change for the better. Do we not see that during the beginning of the month we have an excitement and a sense of religiosity that we do not have just the day before? So there's a change to the better. Do we not see during the last ten nights of the month how the masajid are filled with people? Don't we see that? So the community as a whole is changing from the better. So we can improve. We should never feel that there is no way we can move towards the better. And not to digress, but as a side point, you know, as we all know, the ummah now is facing very severe tests. And one of the most important things upon the du'at and the people who are teaching is to spread hope in the ummah, not to despair. And to remind the people that Allah's victory is in hand. And that is just a matter of time, something that Allah has promised us. If we just do take the right steps, the victory will be there for us. And we shouldn't despair. This is something which we need to continuously remind ourselves. Otherwise, people listening to the media and so forth, they'll feel that the matter is at loss and that Islam will never 
stand up again, and this is a very uh, wrong and very dangerous uh, notion. But that is another topic. Uh, another lesson which we need to get is that of generosity and spending money. We talked about that, but I want to talk about something practical. You know, often when we want to be generous uh, and give charity, we, we take the easy course in charity, which is, okay, the masjid has a box, like there's a masjid fund, for instance, or there might be a box for poor people, or might, there might be a box for relief work somewhere in the world, and we put our money and we go. That is, uh, without doubt, a, a noble deed, and we ask Allah Azza wa to reward each and every one of us for doing that. But there is another act of charity which is more important and more beneficial for the heart. And that is for yourself to get involved with those to whom you want to give charity. And this really is a way to make one's heart um, more grateful to Allah for the blessings he receives and to also be humble and to feel a closer affinity with those Muslims who are less fortunate than us. So there might be a collection during the month of Ramadan for the poor people, let's say in this part of London. And so we might give, and that is good and should be encouraged. But what would be better is if you yourself found a poor family and you yourself went to them and provided them their needs. Whether it is bringing them groceries, whether it is helping them pay a bill, whether it is you know, this matter or that matter. Because now what you've done is you've linked yourself with a problem. And you have sensed how fortunate you are rather than just tossing some coins or some bills in a, in a box, which is, inshallah, rewarded by Allah, but doesn't bring that type of benefit to the heart. So my suggestion is that you know, every one of us should find one charitable project that we take in our own hands. And it doesn't have to be something like an endowment where there are millions of dollars or pounds to it, right? It could be just as simple as, well, I know this family in this street, in this household, they have a lack of money and they need maybe groceries during this month of Ramadan. So I myself come and deliver the groceries there. This is my charity that I give. And then you will find yourself a bond that you will have built with a bond of brotherhood and also a sense of um, humbleness before Allah, which you wouldn't experience if you just gave the charity like that and had somebody else um, uh, distribute it. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't if you can't do the first form or not do the latter. I mean, if this is what you can do, then just go ahead and uh, distribute your charity in any way possible. Um, another lesson which we may gain from this month, of course, is uh, to sense the unity of the Muslims. And this is something which, um, especially even though we sometimes face um, dispute as to the beginning and the end of the month, I mean, we're aware of that, but Nonetheless, even with this, you do sense that all the Muslims are partic part part partaking in this act of worship. All of us are fasting in unison. All of us are breaking our fast in unison. And so therefore, the notion of a single ummah gathered upon a single act of worship or directed towards a single purpose is there. It's not just a theoretical concept, but it's something that you can feel and sense. And so we need to capitalize upon that and take this and use it for other purposes and other ways. And, you know, one of the ways to, to, to uh, gain unity of the Muslims, 
we want to be a practical people, is to bring people upon particular and practical projects. You know, often we talk about, okay, we need to have Muslim unity, and we need to have this, and we need to have that. And a lot of words are spent, and little action is seen. But how do you, how do you actually gain Muslim unity? Well, we have this specific project. We want to do this. And it's a small, measurable project where you can measure success. It's something which is attainable. It's something which is, you can do. And then you just do it. And then when success is, you feel the sense of unity. Yes, we all came together upon this matter and we were all able, with Allah's tawfiq, to actually do it. Um, the final two lessons uh, that we can gain from the month of Ramadan um, is one of taking care of one's health. I mean, as I alluded to earlier, uh, when we talked about the fact of the charity, not only in the sense of adhering to the Prophet ﷺ's example, but also uh, in the sense that people are in need of it, is that it shows us that Islam is an integrated whole. And often, even among those brothers and um, uh, sisters who, who like to adhere to the Sunnah, they tend to see Islam only from one angle, from one perspective. And they don't see the complete picture of Islam. But Islam is integrated because we were created to worship Allah and everything has a connection with one matter or the other matter. It's not just the sense of regulations are to be done this way and ended this way in a type of formalistic way or legalistic you know, way, ritualistic way that has no connection with life and society and the human being and, and nature and the creation and so forth. No, all these matters are created. And those who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given fiqh in the religion sure sight in his basira in the, in, in, in the sharia, they, they sense this and they, they enjoy the sensation of this in their worship and in their deeds. So one of the benefits of fasting, of course, is a, a materialistic benefit, which is, fast, which is good health. And good health is something to be sought for. Because with good health, we can worship Allah better. Obviously, if you're ill, your degree to worship Allah as well is not there. And with good health, there are acts of worship which... <coughs> You can partake in that if you do not have good health, you wouldn't be able to partake in. And did not the Prophet ﷺ say that the strong Muslim is better than the weak Muslim, and in both of them are good? So strength in the complete sense of the word, physical, mental, uh, oratory strength, uh, uh, strength in seeing affairs and understanding how to uh, uh, chart a course of action, strategic strength, planning strength, all the strength. This is better. When a Muslim has these qualities, is better than when a Muslim lacks these qualities, even though in any Muslim, whether he has these qualities or not, there is good. And so taking care of one's health and building strong, healthy bodies is something which we can gain uh, from this month because by reducing the intake of eating and drinking, there are immediate health benefits. And this is something which is well known and, and doesn't need much um, discussion to to. Uh, ascertain. Uh, the final lesson which we can take from the month of Ramadan is a lesson which we can use to prepare the future generations, and that is teaching the children about fasting and how to fast, and therefore bringing them into the Ummah in its acts of worship. Uh, it was the practice of the people of Medina uh, during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, during the Ashura fast, uh, which is on the 10th of Muharram, that they would, since it's just a fast of one day, they would get their children to fast with them. And when the children would begin to cry 
or become agitated uh, because they felt thirsty or felt hungry. They would then try to uh, preoccupy the children by giving them some sort of toys to play with uh, in order to the children would focus on that and forget their hunger or their thirst. In other words, training them. And so therefore, training Muslims children during this month. And unfortunately, something which I've noticed uh, in the United States, I don't know if you have this problem here in the United Kingdom, I hope not, is that often f parents will bring their children to the, mes their, to the masjid during month of Ramadan and the children will just run wildly in the masjid and not, you know, engage in the acts of worship. If the child cannot be disciplined and the child hasn't been taught to be disciplined, then it's best not to bring the child to the masjid because all you are doing is causing uh, disturbances for those people who want to worship Allah. And so perhaps you're just sinning, you know what I'm saying? So it's best in this case to leave the children home and, and not bring them to the masjid if it's going to be the children are going to run wildly. But if the child uh, is a child which has been taught to restrain his or herself and will sit quietly or pray with uh, Muslims, then alhamdulillah, this is something good to train the children. Otherwise, if you just the parents are praying in line, the kids are running around wildly, then this is you know, really something which is objectionable and not good to bring them to the masjid in this case. And Allah knows best. Anyway, my brothers, these were just um, some thoughts concerning how we might make benefit of the month of Ramadan. I ask Allah to allow us to come to the month of Ramadan to make us live for the next few days and then to allow us to uh, enter into this act of worship and reap its rewards and accept it from us on the day of judgment. أقول قولي هذا وأستغفر الله لي ولكم سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك أشهد أن لا أنت استغفره وأتوب إليك. And we can take a few questions before I leave. Inshallah. جزاك الله خيرا to our dear brother and teacher Sheikh Khalifa for that wonderful reminder directed at the heart more so than at the mind of course. So if any brothers or sisters have any questions, sisters can write the questions down and. Pass them through the uh, through the door which leads into the brothers. If I can ask one brother to volunteer, maybe Waqas to um, get hold of any sisters' questions. I'll give them a few minutes to write them down. Sakun la khair. Now, brother there. So what the brother was saying that, um, you know, bringing, introducing Ramadan to the workplace and explaining to our co-workers who may be non-Muslims as to why we're fasting and specifically comparing it to the work ethic in the sense that it teaches us discipline and professionalism, you know, that is similar to being professional at work and so forth. Is this a useful means to... Um, 
um, engage in da'wah during the month of Ramadan? That's the, the sense of the question. Um, uh, first of all, the, the question of bringing Ramadan to the workplace is something that I encourage for brothers um, and sisters, especially if they're in a company and so forth. One thing that some people do in the United States is that they will arrange that they'll do their iftar at work, but they'll bring enough food for everybody in the workplace to make iftar. So if you're in a small group of five or six people, you say, you know, announce people, okay, next Wednesday or, you know, Thursday or whatever day, you know, you want in the work week, um, I'll have dinner for everybody, you know, six people and so forth. And, you know, people will usually come for that, okay? But it's an opportunity for you to introduce to them Ramadan and say, you know, just I wanted you all to know that, you know, this month I'm fasting and so forth and, you know, I wanted you to partake. We usually have a meal and especially if you, you know, come from um, a different ethnicity uh, than the population, you know, for instance, if you're especially not like from American uh, background, European American background or from a British background, Englishman background, then you have ethnic foods. I mean, it, it adds some sort of coloring to the uh, situation, which they might find attractive. Anyway, this is a means to to enter into the topic, which is okay in the Sharia. There's nothing harmful in that whatsoever. Uh, now it comes when explaining to them what the, the aim of uh, Ramadan is. And so as you mentioned, the issue of discipline and how, how that can be related to the work ethic and so forth and uh, professionalism and so forth. So that's obviously one factor of it, just like we talked about the health factor. But the problem is we don't want to restrict fasting to that because the main aim of fasting is taqwa. So, and this is what distinguishes us from what, from just having, um, like some people might go on a type of diet where they're not going to eat and drink from, let's say, from dawn until sunset. So how does, what distinguishes this from just a type of diet? What distinguishes this from some sort of, you know, discipline program, you know, that a person might have? Is the fact that we're doing it as an act of worship. We seek a reward with Allah, and we seek to push back a punishment if we were not to fulfill this commandment. So this is important to touch their hearts. Otherwise, it just looks like some sort of exercise, which somebody might say, well, okay, you know, if you do your health, you know, way by fasting, I do my health way by going to the gym. So it's, you know, it's one way or the other way, there's no difference to it. But if you add to it, well, I'm gaining good health, and at the same time, I'm fulfilling the purpose of my creation. I'm fulfilling the reason of my being. I'm seeking a reward with my Lord in the day of judgment. I'm also becoming conscientious of the poor. You see what I'm saying? I'm also gaining discipline. I'm also gaining this. I'm also gaining that. Then you've presented a very beautiful package that people must admire. Uh, and inshallah, it could be a cause for somebody to become guided and entered into Islam. And also bringing the unbelievers to, to the masajid. Uh, this is something which has been uh, very successful in many of the masajid in the United States, where you know somebody, a friend, and you bring them and say, you know, we're going to have a... You know, this is our month of Ramadan and so forth. Would you like to come? And a lot of times the Masajid have a group iftar. And so the person will come and, you know, he'll be just shocked or she'll be just shocked. All these people here are waiting for a few minutes. And once the adhan starts, they eat some food. And they stand up and they pray. And they share a meal. And they come back and they pray. And they start crying when they hear the Quran. And this leaves an impact on that person, which is, I mean, can't be pushed, you know, away. Cannot be, you know, so this is another way to do um, and so, I mean, one should be innovative in trying to spread the message of Islam by whatever means Allah permits us now. So.
So the the um, the question is that there's a brother who just has returned back to praying on a regular basis, and in previous years he was negligent of his prayer and also his fasting. So what should he do? Should he make up those or just consider those years past and so forth? So this is a legal question. There's a legal aspect to it, but there's also a spiritual aspect to it. Okay, the legal aspect is depending upon whether we view the one who forsakes the prayer to be a Muslim or a non-Muslim. Uh, some of the scholars are of the opinion that if somebody stops praying, does not observe the five prayers, they've left the fold of Islam. And so if that person has left the fold of Islam, then that person was an unbeliever. So what that person lost from prayers and from, from uh, fasting is, is n wasn't you know, achievable to, to, to be made up. Okay. Uh, because that person was a non-Muslim. So I mean, even there's even a question whether they were, he was addressed with these acts of worship. In the initial link. Um, the other opinion, of course, that person is a Muslim and so forth. But, but from a spiritual aspect, if a person in any part of his life, just generally, as a, a rule in spirituality or a rule of growing closer to Allah, if you were doing one part of your life you were negligent concerning any of the commandments of Allah, or uh, you um, transgressed any of the prohibitions of Allah, right, and then you have repented. One should feel remorse, because that's one of the conditions of repentance, is to feel remorse upon what previously proceeded from you. And one way of um, showing that remorse is by increasing good deeds. So a person who was maybe negligent with their prayer should try to do many extra prayers in their life. A person who was negligent with their fast should try to fast many extra days, and so forth and so on. Uh, a person who was negligent towards their parents at one time in their life should try to be overly righteous, or you know, righteous in the most, not in the most, uh, many as possible, as much as possible, to make up for the years and the days or the months past when they were not righteous or parents with your neighbors. If you were not good, then try to be kind and, and so forth and, and so on. And, and that's why the earliest Muslims used to say, perhaps a sin would lead a person to paradise. I mean, if you think about this, it seems a co contradictory, right? We know sins usually take a person to hell, so how could a sin lead us to paradise? Well, it's because when a person makes tawbah, the, the, the fact of that sin remains, the sense of guilt because of that sin remains in that person's heart, that they continuously strive to make up for that by doing good deeds over and over and over, that those good deeds lead that person to paradise. And also the other uh, explanation of that statement is that when a person sins, and they repent, they realize that they were not righteous and pious. They have a humbleness and a humility. They don't have the pride in their heart that could have prevented them from entering into paradise. Because as the Prophet ﷺ said, if a person has just a, a mithqal, uh, 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 the weight of a small ant of pride in one's heart, the person will not enter into paradise. No. Can be a 
Now, um, if you're talking about your zakah, which is obligated upon you, which is the second pillar of the uh, pillars of action, you know, after the prayer, then this should only be directed to Muslims. If you're talking about just charity outside of your zakah, obligatory zakah, then this may be given to Muslims and non-Muslims. However, though, when you give charity to a relative, you get two rewards. One is giving charity, and then the reward of keeping the ties of the womb, right? So when you give charity to a Muslim, there is going to be an additional reward for um, being concerned with a member of your ummah who is worshipping Allah and so forth, that you might not get by giving charity to an unbeliever. So there's that other dimension to it. Uh, but if a person says, well, Allah has blessed me, and I give money to Muslims, and I have some money which I reserve to give to non-Muslims, because perhaps by my good character and my kindness to them, it might bring them to Islam, then that is, well, do you not see how the Prophet ﷺ visited the Jewish boy who was ill? Visiting an ill person is an act of charity. And when the Prophet ﷺ went and visited the Jewish boy uh, who was on his deathbed, and presented Islam to that Jewish lad, uh, the, the, the child looked at the face of his father, and the father said, Obey Abu al-Qasim, meaning the Prophet And so the child then took the shahada and died subsequently and entered into paradise. So he was saved from the hellfire. So visiting a person is a type of charity. So this shows the charity. I mean, even the Prophet showed charity. And the Prophet in Mecca, he used to um, send gifts to the, um, the, the Prophet ﷺ was breastfed um, by Halima Sa'diya, and Halima Sa'diya also was, had breastfed a child of her own. So that person was the Prophet's brother through uh, breastfeeding. Huh? And uh, the Prophet ﷺ in Mecca, I mean Medina, excuse me, would send them gifts and ask about them. And when he, arri- when he arrived to Mecca on the conquest of Mecca, he had found out they had passed away. So the Prophet ﷺ was even sending gifts to his, you know, non-Muslim relatives. And, uh, as as uh, Brother Osama mentioned, of course, there's one of the categories, eight categories of zakah is to give it in order to turn the hearts of the people. But uh, this should be something restricted basically to the people collecting zakah for them to uh, see. This would seem to me that the, the stronger opinion and not just to give it to any uh, thing. Because this is something which is, has a specific purpose, which is either a person of importance in a society to encourage them to become Muslim or if they become Muslim to strengthen their iman and even to give money to an unbeliever who has harming Islam to stop him from harming Islam. So let's uh, say for instance example just to give a contemporary example let us imagine that there is a certain media person who uh, often is trying to find scandals amongst the Muslims and is trying to harm the Muslims uh, you know, uh, we can give him part of the zakah if he's going to refrain from his pen and from his tongue and from his uh, film from harming the Muslims. But who is going to decide that? Is it going to be us as individuals? No, it should be the community uh, imam or community leadership in a sort of uh, situation like here in the United Kingdom where we don't have an imam of the Muslims. We're not a state. Things about Islam. Yeah. And if he says no, uh, 
and me is to carry on chess and uh, uh, to become a Muslim and he start, uh, and he carries on and then he says yes uh, uh, and he doesn't pray circumcise will he uh, be a Muslim? Yeah. Uh, if he doesn't pray sometimes, uh, we hope that he remains a Muslim, but this is something for Allah to judge. So if, if we invite somebody to Islam and that person accepts Islam but is having trouble fulfilling the requirements of prayer, we need to encourage that person, okay? And to try to make it help them pray and make dua for them that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala complete their guidance so that they not only become a Muslim by their tongue but that they also pray. Is it clear? Right. So as as you said correctly, the Prophet ﷺ commanded us to begin our fast with the sighting of the new crescent. This is something which Muslims are in agreement with. They, they don't have any disagreement that the sighting of the crescent indicates the start of the month of Ramadan. Where the Muslims disagree is, is the sighting of the crescent something where if it's seen in another locality, does it apply to our locality if we haven't sighted it? Or is it a situation where every locality should have its own sighting? And this difference of opinion goes back to the earliest Muslims. And it's one of those issues which uh, the Ummah will never resolve because this is an, a something, a difference of understanding that goes back to the earliest Muslims. And we should accept a variety of opinion in these issues and not try to force one way or the other. But at the same time, if we're part of a community, let's say we're part of the message of Tawheed community, this is the message which we pray, this is the message which we are you know, affiliated with and so forth, we should then fast with, um, with this community. I know that in some cities in the United States, uh, they'll have like, perhaps because we have few messages in most of our cities, we don't have like here, maybe hundreds of massages. Maybe a city might have three or four massages. So they, they will have a committee that will decide the, the sighting of the moon in that city. And so they will meet and so forth. We also have a, a shura committee for the whole United States. So in this case, we tend to encourage the brothers to follow whatever their community is doing, even if the moon was sighted elsewhere, because here the unity is to be put forward than perhaps um, an opinion that sighting of one locality is applicable to another locality. It's a difference of opinion. We won't be able to solve it, but we should strive for unity and we should follow whatever the community which we are upon is. So I'm sure in this community they must have a way to in indicate when the month starts in this masjid or? No, we're on a committee of other London Muslims. Okay, so alhamdulillah, as the brother said, there's a committee. So when the committee announces it, inshallah, begin your fast, inshallah. Before we move on to the questions, one quick question relating to the first question. Is that some of the uh, some of our brothers in Britain have organised a national fasting day um, aimed at the non-Muslims, a, a type of dawah, with it um, encouraging people to actually fast from from dawn to sunset, mm -hmm. uh, to gain an idea what, what it's like to do that. Um, do you have any comments regarding that? Well, hey, uh, this is something which I think we need to 
uh, present to the ulama concerning that. Um, I have some hesitation to it because we, we don't want to give them the impression that, that they're actually doing an act of worship which will be accepted by Allah. But whether this is permissible or not, I mean, perhaps you can ask your local scholars, and if your local scholars can't give an opinion, then perhaps you can seek an opinion from some scholars elsewhere in the world. So I don't have anything to say, but Allah knows best. So. Our sister's question says, I am working full-time and cannot take any leave during the last 10 days. What is the best thing or things to do during this time if I cannot stay up during the night? Yes. Uh, the question of the sister is something that many of us face who work um, you know, in professional companies and so forth. Often our vacations does not coincide with the month of Ramadan. So one of the things I, I suggest is that for the coming year, that, you know, try to, if you can, you know, and you don't have any other obligations, uh, to make your vacation coincide with, uh, like, the month of Ramadan or the time for Hajj so that you can participate in these types of acts of worship. And this is something to think about, you know. Uh, just like some people um, in the United States where they have flex hours, they try to make Jum'ah the day that they have off so they can, you know, don't have any problems in terms of praying the Jum'ah prayer and their work maybe extra hours on Monday through Thursday or perhaps work Saturday if they can uh, arrange something like that. Um, now, <clears throat> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is only going to um, um, hold you to the, the, the most that you can do. So if your circumstances does not permit you to uh, do a lot of worship, then don't feel that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to punish you for that. These are all extra acts of worship and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows your intention. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward you for your intention, even if you're unable to do an act of worship, that if you could do it, uh, you would do it, uh, if Allah knows that of you. And we know this from many examples from the Sunnah. The Prophet said that when a person is ill or traveling, uh, it is written for him the reward of those extra deeds that he would have done when he is healthy or uh, when he or she is not traveling. So when a person is traveling, they tend, because traveling brings tire, and also, it's the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ that you don't do the nawafil prayers. So, if it's your practice to practice the, to pray the nawafil prayers when one is not um, uh, traveling, then you're going to get those rewards. And likewise, if you're ill, if, you're, if your practice is that you fast always Mondays and Thursdays, and for this week you're ill and so you cannot fast, you'll be written for you that you fasted that Monday and Thursday. So, don't feel that if your circumstances means that you're not going to gain that act of worship, that if you intended to, to do it, had you had the ability, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you some reward. Now, the other thing <coughs> is that <coughs> from the mercy of the sharia is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us more than one way to do good deeds. I mean, there's fasting, there's charity, there's reading the Quran, there's standing in night prayer and so forth. So, <coughs> if my work schedule precludes me from standing in the night prayer, then I can seek to gain benefits from this month by maybe increasing my charity, by maybe reading more Qur'an, by maybe doing more acts of kindness, you know, helping people and so forth, to make up for that which I wanted to do but my circumstances uh, do not do. And I ask Allah uh, to bless our sister and to make it easy for her so she doesn't have to work and let Allah provide her with a sustenance to raise from her this trial. <clears throat> is it permissible to take something to prevent menstruation, especially if it is going to occur in the last 10 days? Uh, in general, the fuqaha have said it is permissible to take uh, something which will prevent menstruation. Uh, but of course, this is conditional that it doesn't result in a long-term harm. 
So if the means of preventing it uh, does not result in the long-term physical harm to the body, then this is permissible according to the opinions of, of many of the fuqaha in our time. And uh, okay. that's really no, this question is from my son. Really, I wasn't expecting, but Inshallah. he has to be quite good English. But he said, yeah. you know, the Prophet Muhammad sent all mankind, not the jinn. Yeah. He said, you know, the jinn, you know, so are Muslims. May Allah reward. In fact, we, I mean, you know, um, it is from the adab of um, giving da'wah and something that uh, Sheikh Abdul Aziz bin Baz used to always do in his talks is to also address the jinns. So uh, if there are any jinns present in this gathering and so forth, we, the obligation to fast from Allah is also obligated upon them like it is obligated upon us human beings. And we ask Allah Azza wa Jal to increase them in taqwa and let them benefit from this month like he allows us to benefit from this month. <coughs> A bit of clarification regarding <coughs> zakah on gold <coughs> possessed by a lady. <coughs> so the <coughs> ulama have differed uh, concerning the zakah on gold possessed by a lady which she uses to wear. As far as the zakah on the gold which she keeps in order for, like we say, maybe for a rainy day or for some sort of hardship and so forth, there is no difference that she needs to give zakah on that gold. But the gold that she wears, is there zakah upon it or not? The ulama have um, uh, differed concerning that. And inshallah, the correct opinion or the stronger opinion is that if she's using the gold for her personal use, she doesn't need to pay zakah. But if the gold is used for... Uh, financial uh, stability and so forth, then uh, she needs to uh, pay zakah on that uh, 2.5%. We can take uh, these two questions from the sisters and one question from the brother and we'll uh, quit at that. Uh, it is very difficult to find poor people in this country. Should we then send money abroad? Well, I, I mean, I come just to England just for a few days during the year and visit, but I find it hard to believe that there are not poor people here uh, because America is, in general, a more wealthier country uh, than the United Kingdom, and we have poor people amongst the Muslims. So I think there are poor people. And this is part of the problem, that we don't know our poor people. You know, one of the things we, I used to um, advise the brothers in different masajid is that don't wait until Ramadan to figure out who the poor people are for Zakat al-Fitr. You see, I mean, masajid, you, you find... We'll sometimes call different people say, okay, if you know anybody, poor person, give us their name. I mean, only in Ramadan we remember there's poor people? Or should we have remembered, know who those poor people are? So when the month of Ramadan comes, we already know who we should target with our zakat al-fitr. I mean, this is just one act of worship, let alone with the zakat al-mal. So um, in terms of uh, the poor people, there are poor people here. If one doesn't know who the poor people is, then give the money your zakat, whether it's the obligatory zakat or a um, recommended zakat, then give it to the people of the masjid and they will, inshallah, find poor people for you to distribute that zakat. So as far as sending money abroad, um, <clears throat> it seems that the stronger opinion is that first zakat should be given to those in your locale and then uh, to those a distance from your locale. Because from the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, when he sent Mu'ath to Yemen to teach them, he said after telling him that he should invite them to the testimony of faith, La ilaha Allah, Muhammad Rasulullah, and inviting them to five prayers during the day, 
that he should take from them a charity, which he takes from their rich and gives to their poor. So Imam al-Nawawi and others have said that in the wording of the Prophet wasallam, when he said, take from their rich and give to their poor, is an indication that the zakah should first go to the people of that locale. But this is a difference of opinion. So if the people, the Muslims feel that there is a greater need someplace in the other place in the world to give their zakah, then inshallah, uh, there's no harm uh, in that. Uh, is it more beneficial to feed non-Muslim poor people in Ramadan for the sake of da'wah or to leave the money to feed Muslims to open their fast? Well, I think there are millions of Muslims in the world who are, I mean, don't find what they need to eat. So, you know, while I, I don't want to um, uh, seem that, you know, uh, I don't want to uh, portray myself as a person who is uh, not sensitive to the needs of any human being who is hungry, we do have an obligation to those people in our ummah to give them zakah. So if we can do both, then alhamdulillah, but if we're required to do one, then let us uh, give zakah to the Muslims first. And Allah knows best. No, it's not obligatory to pray salah. But the Prophet said, my son, that uh, anybody who stands in the month of Ramadan out of Iman. In other words, you stand the prayer because you believe that Allah <coughs> has recommended for you to do this prayer and Allah loves this act. And also you do it seeking Allah's reward. Not just doing it to show off or not doing it just because my father is doing it. Your sins will be forgiven. So, you know, try to do tarawih and try to train yourself and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you. and again. Dear brother Sheikh Ali Atimimi, uh, for the wonderful reminder and for answering all those questions. Uh, just before I close, I'd like to make one uh, request actually uh, for help in, in a matter of, of dawah uh, to the brothers and sisters here. We have managed to uh, obtain a set of Discovery Islam posters uh, for the masjid, you know, the set of 25 posters, um, which need laminating. Uh, they need lamination. And these are A1 size posters, it's actually quite uh, expensive. Uh, it works out usually at £15 per poster. Uh, to laminate. We've managed to get a lower quote of £10 per poster, so that works out to £250. So if any brother or sister uh, knows anywhere we can get it done cheaper actually, if you'd please uh, let us know. Uh, and also if you can uh, help toward the cost of, of that lamination to, toward the town activities, uh, we'd be very grateful. And beyond that, I'd just like to express my uh, deep thanks to, to our brother and Sheikh Ali Tamimi and to our brother Abu Muntasir and all the brothers involved at for actually uh, um, cooperating with us to organize this event to all the brothers and sisters who uh, have contributed to this. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless and accept our actions. Jazakumullah khairan wa sallallahu ta'ala wa alayhi wa sallam.